Lord, your word tells us that you will hold us, that you will sustain us, that you are our refuge and strength. Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning, that by your spirit and through the truth of your word, you would anchor us more deeply in your promises, that you would strengthen our faith in those promises, and that you would give us the comfort and the courage and the perspective that we need. We come before you today, God, as needy people. But we are thankful that we know a God who is sufficient, whose grace is sufficient to meet all of our needs, always, in every way, at every time. So God, we come in faith and humility and ask for your blessing, that your spirit would move upon us and in us for your glory. We ask this blessing now on the preaching of your word in Christ's name, amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 5. Sometimes obedience to God can be hard. It's hard because God calls us to do hard things. He asks us to do things that uh, feel risky. God commands us to do things that may feel even painful. He calls us to do things that challenge our fears, things that expose our inadequacies. And while we know the biblical principle is true, that obeying God always leads to blessing, we know that it's always worth it. We believe that that's the case. That's why we seek to obey God. At the same time, the reality is this, that our experience of that blessing that comes through obedience, that experience is not always immediate. It doesn't always happen instantaneously. Sometimes God's plan is complex. Sometimes his timing is drawn out. And that means that even though you may be right in the middle of God's will, doing exactly what he wants you to be doing, sometimes things get worse before they get better. So if that's the case, if that's what life is like, if that's what following God is like, if that's what our experience may be if we step out in faith and obey him, What is it that can strengthen our faith and firm up our resolve? What is it that will encourage us to persevere in obeying God, even when his promises are still yet unfulfilled? Where do we turn when it it seems like things may never get better? And we might even start to wonder if God is actually going to keep his promise. Well, simply put, we turn to God, don't we? And we pour out our heart to him. We remember who he is. We remember what he has said. And we believe that he is who he says he is. You see, certainty in the face of unknowns, strength even in the face of opposition, faith instead of fear, those things are found in knowing God and in beholding him, seeing him for who he is. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses has just returned to the land of Egypt from Mount Sinai. He's been gone for 40 years, and now he and his brother Aaron, having been commissioned by God, return. And they announce to the elders of Israel that God is now going to lead them out of slavery. A new day is dawning. This is good news. And the people receive this message at the end of chapter 4 with gladness. They bow and they worship. Because God is finally going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to set them free and fulfill his covenant promise. But now comes the more challenging part. That's an exciting message to share with the children of Israel. But now Moses has to go to Pharaoh. And he has to announce God's word 
to Pharaoh. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground today, all of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, and I've broken it into four sections that sort of trace the flow of the story. In verses 1 through 4, we find this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. It says, afterward, it's chapter 5, verse 1, after returning to Egypt, after telling the children of Israel, after they rejoice and worship, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. This is the initial confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, and it won't be the last. But what we see here is that Moses is now finally obeying God. If you remember, Moses was hesitant. He had all these excuses, all these protests as to why God's plan wouldn't work and why he was the wrong man for the job. And and no matter what he says to God, God answers and God confirms his promise and he provides what Moses needs. And so Moses has now submitted to God. He's doing what God has said. And this is a big step considering where he was at Mount Sinai. Notice what this message that Moses communicates, what it entails As he speaks to Pharaoh, first of all, he relates God's name to this man. He relates God's name. He invokes the personal name of God, Yahweh, the I Am. This is the God who spoke to Moses from the bush on the mountain. This is the eternal, self-existent, self-sustaining, personal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Moses' announcement starts like this. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh. Moses is speaking not for himself, but for God. And he declares not only God's name to this pagan king, but he declares God's relationship to Israel. This is the Lord, the God of Israel. This God loves the people that Pharaoh has subjugated. This God is loyal to these people. He cares for them. And then Moses relays God's command. He says, let them go. And this message comes with divine authority. It is in the name of God. It is not a request. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And he states to Pharaoh the purpose behind all of this. Let the people go so that they can worship. If Pharaoh refuses this command, he will be interfering with God's purpose, and he will be robbing God of the worship due his name. Let them go so that they may worship, so they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, it says. So how is this message received? Well, just as God said it would be, Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's hard. He says, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Who is this God in whose name you speak? Who's telling me what to do? Now, I want to make it clear. I do not think at all that Pharaoh is making this statement out of ignorance in the sense that he's never heard of this God. I mean, keep in mind, these people have been in Egypt for over 400 years at this point. Their culture and their gods and their history and even their language, their customs, it would all have been familiar to the Egyptians. 
This is very clearly a statement of rejection. Who is the Lord? He has no power or authority over me. He's saying, this God doesn't impress me. I'm not taking orders from him. So he dismisses God's name. He dismisses the Lord's claim on Israel. He dismisses his authority. He dismisses his purposes. Says, that God means nothing to me, Moses. And so he defies God's command. He says, moreover, I will not let Israel go. Verse 2. His retort to Moses is cynical and arrogant and disrespectful, and it is ironically so true. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh really doesn't know who he's dealing with. He's about to find out. He'll soon find out. Moses and Aaron counter his his rejection. They give a counter-argument in verse 3. They say, listen, there's a reason we're saying this. The Lord has met with us. We're not making this up. God came down and spoke to us. He told us these things. And if we don't obey, and implying to Pharaoh that if Pharaoh doesn't obey as well, this is a God who will judge. He judges those who reject his will. So they offer this counter-argument in verse 3, but Pharaoh's not moved. In fact, he becomes irritated and suspicious. In verse 4, he says, why are you guys doing this? Why are you saying this? You see, keeping the people busy at work was essential to Egypt for two reasons. First of all, it was a matter of their national prosperity. If they lose their workforce, that's a big economic hit. But secondly, it's important for their national security. And he's pointing this out, you see, in his answer. Verse 5, he says, the people of the land are now many. That could be a danger to Egypt, a threat. If they're turned loose from their work, not only do they miss that source of income and free labor, but there's also now this mobilized people who's gathering strength and getting organized, and that poses a military threat, a political threat. To Egypt. So Pharaoh sees Moses and Aaron as troublemakers at best, but enemies of the state at worst. So Pharaoh refuses. His heart is hard. And remember, this should not have been a surprise to Moses and to Aaron because Moses had relayed God's words to Aaron. God had said this would be the case. He had said, Pharaoh will not let you go unless I compel him with a mighty strong hand. He said, Pharaoh's heart will be hard. He'd even said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So none of this should have surprised them. This conflict was expected, but then things began to turn into a nightmare. This conflict turns into a great catastrophe. Verses 5 through 21 recount how things go from bad to worse. Conflict goes to catastrophe. What started off as a train wreck in Pharaoh's court really turns into a national nightmare for the nation of Israel. Pharaoh gives instructions to the taskmasters in verses 6 through 9. It says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, these are Egyptian authorities who are under Pharaoh, and to their foreman, he says this in verse 7, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. The straw would have lent structural support to the clay they were putting together. And even as that straw deteriorated, there was a certain chemical reaction that sort of cured those bricks and made them more stable. So that straw was provided for them to mix in. He says, don't provide it for them anymore. Make them go get it themselves. But, verse 8, the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They're lazy, he says. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying Words. 
That's a hard heart, isn't it? Increase the demands, decrease their supplies, and it's almost impossible not to hear the hiss of the serpent as he says, God did not really say that to them. God is not going to rescue them and redeem them. He's not going to deliver them out of our hands. He's not trying to do something here. Don't pay attention to Moses and his lying words. In verses 10 through 14, the taskmasters carry out his wishes. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Pharaoh's orders are carried out, and the people are held accountable for not meeting the quota. They can't keep up, and they're beaten for it. So the foremen make an appeal. They realize, listen, this is not going well, and something has to give. So they get organized, and they actually go make an appeal to Pharaoh. In verses 15, it says, Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people, get this, think about what's going on in their thought process here. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Think the heartbreaking realization that set in for these foremen is that this recent change in their work description, their job description, this recent change in the treatment by their Egyptian authorities, this wasn't just some like overeager you know, officer. And this wasn't just some temporary measure that was just for that day or that week. This was coming from the top down, from Pharaoh himself. It was the new normal, and there was no hope of changing Pharaoh's mind. And they realized they were in trouble. They're between a rock and a hard place. And what's interesting is these foremen, these, these um, Hebrew leaders, they turn on Moses and Aaron. This is part of this catastrophe, things going from bad to worse. Notice in verse 20, Moses and Aaron must have known they were meeting with Pharaoh. And so they're bracing themselves for the conversation that comes after that. Because it says, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they, this is the foreman, said to them, Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand. To kill us. This is a word of distrust, a word of anger, a word of resentment. They're saying, You guys said you were going to make things better, but you've made it worse. You've made us repulsive in the sight of Pharaoh. And you've, in, as it were, put a sword in his hand to kill us. You see, the people of Israel, before Moses and Aaron did this, they were already groaning, they were already sighing, they were already crying out to God for help and for rescue. 
But now they're in an even worse situation, if it could get any worse. How did it get this way? Because Moses obeyed God. He did what God had told him to do. And what did he get for his troubles? Well, Pharaoh rejects him as an agitator and an enemy of the state. And now Israel has rejected Moses as well because he's made their lives more miserable and impossible than it even was before. You see, here's the hard reality. Sometimes for those who follow God, things will get worse before they get better. Obedience does not always lead to immediate blessing. Maybe you can relate to that. But it's important that we not let this kind of an experience undermine our faith. This is no reason to despair or to assume that God's promises have failed or to turn away from God. I was reminded this week of John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. I hope most or all of you have read that before. But in this allegory of the Christian life, there's a man, the main character, his name is Christian. He sets out from the city of destruction because he's heard that judgment is coming upon that city, the city where he was born. And so he's on his way to the celestial city. And at the beginning of the book, he's accompanied, as he starts off on this journey, by a neighbor whose name is Pliable. Pliable was very receptive to Christian's message. He told him what was going to happen. He said, join me as we go to the celestial city. Now, the journey that they were embarking on would be fraught with many dangers and many obstacles, but Christian and Pliable had no idea about the hardships that lay ahead. And not long after they began, the path that they were on gave way to this swamp in a field. It it was hard to see, but they slipped down into it. It was called the Slough of Despond, this marshy bog. And Pliable and Christian are sinking in the muck, getting sucked down into the mud, and Pliable becomes angry with Christian. Because he says, this isn't what I signed up for. John Bunyan writes, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess that brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. So away he went, and Christian saw him no more. Some people think that the Christian life is supposed to always be a smooth path, but it's not. It's just not. But if you start to think that hardship and difficulty that that means you should turn back, or that it means you must be on the wrong path. That is a dangerous lie from the enemy. In Acts chapter 14, verse 21, Paul and Barnabas, after experiencing great persecution, Paul's just been stoned and left for dead. It says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Genuine faith must persevere and not turn back. And sometimes things will get worse before they get better. But patience and perseverance are essential. If we're going to believe God and trust in his promises and obey him, we must not turn back when things become difficult. 
Moses has had this conflict with Pharaoh that turned into a great catastrophe. And how does he respond to all this? How does he respond when things go from bad to worse? He gets shot down by Pharaoh. He's rejected by the the leaders of Israel. Well, now we see in verses 22 through 23, Moses' complaint. Moses' complaint. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. There's a lot of why questions in this story. In chapter 4, Pharaoh says, or chapter 5, verse 4, Pharaoh says, why do you take the people away from their work? In verse 14, the taskmasters say to the people of Israel, why have you not done all your task of making bricks? In verse 15, the foremen say, why do you treat your servants like this? And now it's Moses' turn to ask some questions. And his questions are directed to God. He says, why have you done evil, in verse 22, to this people? It's important we understand that the Hebrew word here for evil can be a broader word than our English word. It doesn't necessarily always mean moral wrong. He's not charging God with sin or with doing something that is immoral. He's using evil here to describe the calamity and the disaster that has come upon them. You see, God had sent Moses to Pharaoh, and that made things worse. And Moses knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God anticipated this, that God planned this, that God is completely in control of all of these circumstances, and he's struggling to see why God would allow this to happen. God, I know you're in charge, but I don't understand why you're doing this. His second question, why? He says, why did you ever send me? We see in this complaint Moses' doubts Doubts that are turning to despair. And he's wrestling with some of his old fears, some of his old hesitations, those old uncertainties. He thought he had worked through those. Remember in that dialogue with God on the mountain, maybe sometimes you've worked through something. You think you've put this issue to bed, that you've dealt with it, that you've grown and you've changed, sort of you know, handled that area of that struggle in your faith. But then something happens to trigger those old struggles, and you find yourself dealing with those same old battles once again. That's where Moses is. Why did you send me? I knew I was the wrong man for the job. I knew this wouldn't work. All those old uncertainties bubbling back up to the surface. He asks these questions, and then these questions are followed by complaints in verse 23. There's two complaints here. He says, since you sent me, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Pharaoh has done evil. This complaint has to do with God's covenant promise. He says, listen, Pharaoh has done evil to your people, but you said you would bless us. That's the promise to Abraham. And that you would bless those who bless us and those who dishonor us you would curse. But ever since I came, to, came here, Pharaoh's been treating us evil. With, with this, he's been done this great evil to us. So he's really questioning God's faithfulness to his covenant. And then he says, secondly, and you've not delivered your people at all. He's not just questioning God's faithfulness to his covenant, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's questioning God's word back on the mountain. God had spoken to Moses and promised deliverance, but things are getting worse instead of better. This is his complaint. Now keep in mind, God had told Moses, Pharaoh would not listen. God had told Moses that his heart would be hardened. 
He told Moses there would be a need for a divine display of power, for great judgment, signs and wonders against Pharaoh. But Moses is frustrated about God's timing. Why haven't you done it yet? And this difficulty, this pain that they're going through is more than what Moses expected. But although there is weakness and doubt and fear on display here in in this complaint of Moses, Moses is to be commended for this. He doesn't take this complaint to Aaron. He doesn't take this complaint to the people of Israel. He doesn't take this complaint to his wife, Zipporah. No, he goes to God. He brings his complaint to the only one who can do something about it. God is the one he has an issue with. So he pours out his heart before the Lord. God, I don't understand. God, here's where I'm struggling. God, what are you doing? And he pours out this complaint to God. And I believe this instinct to go to God when he's struggling with God, that is the mark of genuine faith. It doesn't mean he never struggles. It means he goes with those struggles to the one that he's struggling with, to God. We see this same thing in the Psalms expressed over and over again. Pouring out a complaint before God. Asking him your questions, expressing your grief, your confusion, your frustration to him. Even Jesus models this for us on the cross as he quotes Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are to go to God with our questions, with our confusion. We go to God with our feelings of doubt and despair. We pour out our heart to him. This is the right outlet for our fears and our frustrations. It's prayer. Bringing our complaint to God. Our need in times of crisis is always to go to God. So although Moses is lacking in much, and although we can see God is incredibly patient with him here, and incredibly merciful and gracious to bear with this reluctant leader, yet there's still something in this kind of complaint that is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God because what we find next is that Moses is not rebuked. Moses is not punished. Moses is not rejected. Moses is answered. He is answered as he pours out his complaint to the Lord. And in this answer, although it's not the answer Moses expects, we find the truth that Moses needed to strengthen his faith and renew his resolve. The fourth section I want to look at this morning is confirmation. It's in verse Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. This is God's confirmation to Moses. First, God addresses Moses' complaint in verse 1. The complaint that we find in verse 23 of chapter 5. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God's response to Moses' complaint is twofold. First of all, he says, listen, my judgment is coming on Pharaoh, the one who has dismissed me and disrespected me and defied my command. I'm about to judge him. The one who has done this great evil against you, the one who has perpetrated these atrocities and exploited you and oppressed you, I am now going to deal with him. It's not been overlooked. He's going to be dealt with. But secondly, deliverance is coming for Israel. He's saying, listen, a reversal is going to happen. The one who right now is enslaving you and keeping you here, he is actually going to send you out. He will drive you out. 
There's going to be a reversal. So God hears his complaint. He says, God, Pharaoh is, is committing this great evil against us, and you've not delivered us. God says, I'm about to. Watch this. Watch this. Now I am going to do it. Now you shall see. You, Moses, shall see. You're about to experience it. So that addresses Moses' complaint, what we find there in chapter 5, verse 23. But then God keeps talking because he's not just addressing the complaint, these protests that Moses has made. He also wants to deal with those questions, those why questions. Moses, like everyone else in the story, is asking why. So God speaks to that question, but he doesn't directly answer the why question because understanding why is really not what Moses needed. God answers a different question, a better question. He answers the who question, not the why question. Because what Moses needed in that moment and what you need and what I need when we face things that are painful and difficult and confusing, when we step out in faith to obey God and things get worse instead of better, what we need in those moments, when we face life's most pressing and painful trials, what we need is a vision of God. What we need is to see God. What we need is to know who God is. And so God gives this amazing speech to Moses, starting in verse 2. God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, the slavery, to, from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know. That I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This amazing speech starts and ends with a simple declaration. One that is infinite in its significance. God says to Moses, I am the Lord. In fact, this statement appears four times in verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. That's what Moses needed to know, not why. He needed to know who. And God says, I am the Lord, the great I am, the self-existent, eternal, personal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And to know God, to know his name, is to know his nature, his character, and his glory. You see, all that the people needed, all that Moses needed, is found in God. It all depends on God. And everything that God has promised to do depends on his own power and faithfulness. And he is powerful and faithful. And God recounts for Moses this, this record of his faithfulness and power. He recalls what he has done in the past in verses 3 through 4. 
God reminds Moses what he has done. He says, I appeared to Abraham. I appeared to Isaac. I appeared to Jacob. And I established my covenant with them. You see, God's actions in the past reveal his grace, his generosity, his intentions to bless. And this is the foundation of their relationship with God. This is the promise. The reason why Moses is in this situation, why God is sending him into Egypt, the the explanation for what is about to happen in the near future, all goes back to what God had said to Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob. This promise to bless them and make them great and bring them into this land and bless the whole world through them. It all depends on that. And God appeared to them and he spoke to them. He established a covenant with them and he's not about to stop what he started makes an interesting comment. He says that by his name, the Lord, he did not make himself known to them, verse 3. He says, I revealed myself to them, but not as fully and as clearly as I'm revealing myself to you now. You see, something is happening not just in the past. God is not just the God of yesterday. He's the God of today. And God is at work in the present. And in verse 5, God speaks of what he's doing in the present. He's revealing his name to Moses But he also says, I have heard their groaning. He knows their current suffering and its cause. He knows what Pharaoh is doing. And he says, I've remembered my covenant. I am here now, still doing, still carrying out the purposes that I began back then. God's actions in the present reveal his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his loyalty, his compassion, his care. God is here. God is now. God is working. He's the God of yesterday. He's the God of today. And God tells Moses, oh, and by the way, I'm also the God of tomorrow. In verses 6 through 8, God gives these seven statements of I will. I will. They are a promise of what God will do in the future. The seven I wills, if you would, of their salvation. This avalanche of affirmations. I will. I will. I will. I will. Everything that Moses needed, everything that Israel needed, everything that lay outside their reach, everything that lay outside their power, God promises that he will personally perform. I will. He will accomplish it by his own power. And with each I will, God is putting strength and courage and resolve deep down into Moses' bones. He says, I will bring you out. Israel will be powerfully removed from the land of Egypt, the land of their suffering. How? God says, I will do it. He says, I will deliver you. You see, they will be rescued from Pharaoh's power. They will be saved from the danger that is there. How? God will do it. He says, I will redeem you. There's going to be a price paid. Blood will be shed. Judgment will fall. But Israel will be redeemed. How? God says, I will do it. He says, I will take you to be my people. No longer will they belong to Pharaoh as his slaves, his workforce to exploit. They will belong to God as a people called out and set apart for worship. God says, I will do that as well. And he says, I will be your God. I will be your God. Look in verse 7 because this really is at the heart of this whole speech. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and get this, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's really at the heart of this whole speech, is to know God, 
And we know God when we see what God has done. He reveals himself through his works, his works of judgment and his works of salvation. And he says, I will be your God and you will know who I am. And that's more important for you, Moses. That's more important for the children of Israel, Moses, than understanding why. You need to know who I am. And by the way, that is really at the heart of everything God is doing here. This speech is not just to encourage Moses. God's revealing his purpose in all things to make himself known, to display his glory so that all will see who he is. He says, I will bring you out. You will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And he will be their God. There's going to be relationship. God's very presence will dwell with them. They will experience his power and his presence. God will do it. He says, I will bring you into the land. Sometimes people check out when they read these promises about the land, but you have to understand what this meant for them. It meant rest. It meant a home. Two things they didn't have right now. It meant God's provision for their needs, and God says, I will do it. He would bring them through the wilderness. He would provide their food and their water each day miraculously. He would drive out their enemies from the land of Canaan and bring them home so that they can rest. And he says, I will give it to you for a possession. These people who are destitute, who have no rights in the land of Egypt, will have a rich inheritance. The slaves will become wealthy. The destitute will have a possession, a fruitful land that that with each season would bring in God's blessings and provision. God says, I will, I will, I will do all of this, and I will do it by my power. These seven I wills display God's glory and his goodness and his faithfulness and they highlight the eternal truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no hoops for Moses or the children of Israel to jump through. God says, I will do it. I will do it. There will be times of waiting. There may be setbacks. There may be obstacles that seem impossible to us. There may be times of tears and trials, but God's salvation is on the horizon. And God says, I will do it. And then he finishes this speech, this declaration of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. With this final repetition of that phrase, he says, I am the Lord. This is his divine signature. The emphatic punctuation mark at the end of this profound response to Moses' deepest questions and fears. Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why me? God says, Moses, here's what you need. You need to know who I am. You need to behold me. You need to see me. You see, God never answered Moses' questions directly, did he? He never told him why. And the reason for that is because at every point, what Moses needed, what you need, and what I need is not to know answers to our why questions. We need to know who. We need to know God. We need what verse 7 talks about. Then you will know that I am the Lord. We need to remember God's faithfulness and grace in the past as well. Just as God pointed Moses to the past and said, remember what I did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We too need to look back to the past and remember God's mighty works. We need to remember his gracious promises to us in the past, how God has rescued us, how God has pursued us, 
how God has initiated a relationship with us and made very great and precious promises to us in the past. We look to that and we remember that. We need to consider God's heart for us in the present. God's current, immediate, present care for us. His presence with us. You see, the God of the past is also the God of today. He is with us today. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. The God who spoke to Moses on the mountain speaks to us today in his word. The God who cared for Israel in the wilderness cares for you and me today in 2020 in Douglas County. The God who was with David, the God who sustained Elijah the prophet, the God who was with Daniel in the lion's den, the God who took on flesh and walked on water and calmed the sea and rose from the dead, he's with us here today, now. And we need to consider God's works to come in the future. We need to remember the I wills, the return of Christ and his coming kingdom, the fullness of our redemption as we experience one day resurrection, and the fullness of eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth, our future inheritance with Christ. All of this is ours. It is ours. It is our hope, not because we jump through hoops, not because we overcome, not because of our performance, not because of how smart we are or wise we are or good we may think we may be. This is all ours because God says, I will. I will. Friends, our security and our confidence is found in the certainty of those words, that our God has said, I will. Yes, there, as you read scripture, there are many you musts, there's commands to be obeyed, but salvation and hope and strength ultimately depends on the God who says, I will. Friends, when your heart and your mind and your soul is captured By this vision of God, who says, I am the Lord. And when you know him and when you see him in his greatness and his glory, when you see his works in the past and what he's doing now and what he is going to do in the future, the God who was and is and is to come, it is then and only then that you will be able to face adversity and endure pain and suffer loss and not lose heart. Not turn back. Some of you today need to see this God. You need to behold him. And you may be thinking, yeah, that's great that God did that for Moses. But he isn't speaking to me. I haven't had any conversations like that. God hasn't revealed himself to me like that. Are you sure about that? Because the Bible says that he actually has. He has. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate self-revelation of God. That's what God's doing here, by the way, in, in Exodus 6. God is revealing himself to Moses more deeply, more clearly than he had even revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making himself known. This is God's self-disclosure. I am the Lord. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm doing. And that is done even more fully and perfectly in the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate self-revelation of God. He is the living word. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to make him known. 
And it is in Christ that we see God's mighty work of grace and redemption in the past. Christ's blood shed for us at the cross, the blood that ratified the new covenant, the blood that seals our salvation and reconciles us to God. We don't just look back to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We look back to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's the foundation for our hope. That's the basis of our relationship with God. It is in Christ that we come to embrace God as our God. And he receives us as his people. It is in Christ that all of God's I wills become I haves. I have delivered you. I have redeemed you. I have brought you out of slavery. I have made you my own. And I have become your God and you have become my people. We look to the past and we consider all that God has done for us through Christ. All that he has revealed to us through his son Jesus Christ. And we look to Christ in the present as well. In Christ today, we have a mediator. We have a great high priest who pleads our case before the Father. We have a Savior. We have a divine husband who loves the church as his own bride. In Christ, we have ongoing life today, now, here, as we abide in him and he abides in us. And as we look to to Christ, we see hope for the future as well, don't we? In Christ, we have even more promises yet to come. There are more I wills that are yet unfulfilled, that will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He says, I will keep you in my hand. I will return and take you home. I will raise you up on the last day. I will judge the wicked and establish my kingdom. I will make all things new, and I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. This is God's revelation to us. God has spoken these things to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that Moses had and more, more is ours. It's ours in Christ. And so therefore, it's Christ that we need to see. And it is Christ that we need to receive as the revelation of God for us. Our need in crisis is always God. He's the God who says, I have and I am, and I will. We don't need to know why as much as we often want to. We don't need to always know how, although sometimes we want to. We don't need to always know when or where, but we always need to know who. We need to know him. We need to know him. God, we come before you now acknowledging our greatest need at every moment is to know you. And we know that this is your great purpose in both judgment and salvation is to make yourself known so that we will know that you are the Lord. God, help us to see you today as you are, to consider all that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, how you've revealed yourself to us. And pray, God, that those who do not believe would see you and that they would come in faith and repentance to trust in your promise, to receive the salvation, all the I wills that only you can perform. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who are trying to follow you, but yet we face difficulty and opposition, and sometimes it seems like things are getting worse instead of better, pray that you would help us to fix our gaze upon you, and that we would be renewed in our resolve to follow you and obey you and trust you as we consider all that you've done in the past, all that you're doing now, and all that you will do in the future. Lord, we could have never discovered you on our own or climbed the ladder, so to speak, 
to find out what you're like. We thank you that you came down to us. You've revealed yourself to us. So, Lord, fix our gaze on Christ and strengthen our faith today by your spirit and through your word. Amen.